Hello, hello. My name is John Edwards. I am sans Zeke Baker today. He is off doing dad duty, so I don't know if that makes this dad drinking bourbon or dad's drinking bourbon, because the two gentlemen I'm sitting with are not necessarily dads yet, although I kind of have a feeling one day they will be, and that is <laughs> Charlie and Andy Nelson from Nelson's Greenbrier, home of Bellevue Bourbon. Thank you guys very much for taking the time. Yeah, thank you for, for having We're dog dads, by the way. If that yeah. <laughs> I should have brought Glenn Karens for you. I feel really bad because dog dads count. <laughs> so we are, we are here. You guys are taking time out of your Sunday afternoon to sit here with me. I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate that, but, man, it's been a hell of a few years for you guys, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's been kind of crazy. The last uh, few years, really the last like 10 to 12 years have been a little crazy, but uh, it it doesn't, there are no signs of it slowing down, that's for sure. It just keeps getting crazier and crazier. And that's a good thing though, right? Yeah. I, well, I mean, that's what we signed up for. So yeah. we're, you know, we're prepared for it. What I think we're going to do, and, and I reached out to you guys before, and thank you again. Uh, I won't say thank you the whole time. Enough, like five <laughs> times is enough. But the, um, I'll continue to say you're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> guys, what I think we'll do is we'll break this up into a couple episodes. The first one, let's focus on the history of the distillery and how you guys came to, to be in this position where you're working nonstop where you are. There's a, a heck of a story about you guys taking a drive up to Greenbrier, and we're going to get to that. So we'll, we'll talk about the story, how you made the distillery, and then second episode, let's focus more on the whiskey, because not only are you guys known for your finishes, but you're known for the single barrels that are coming out, the Belgian bourbon that's there, and we have the whole Nelson's line that you guys have brought back to life. So this first episode, if you're listening, it's almost like turn to side two if you only care about whiskey. <laughs> but if you want to learn a little bit of something about how these two gentlemen came to be in this great building. I mean, you guys are in the, the Marathon Music Works, that row. Guy from American Pickers is right down the, the street mm -hmm. in the same yep. building. And that, that American flag that's out there. Uh, right by our mill is actually from we we bought off of Mike Wolf from the TV show American Pickers. Yeah. yeah, I can only explain it if you haven't been here. There is a wonderful conference room we are in at Nelson's Greenbrier Distillery. I am looking at Louisa. The <laughs> we. <laughs> <laughs> I'll move these over here. No, you're good. But I, I am looking at at your still, which is out there. Huge warehouse. I mean. Where this started, you can't even imagine, I bet, where you guys are now, having a whole office section of your distillery building, having the tours, the tour guides are out there. Shout out to our friend Sam. Yeah. He always does a good tour. Talk a little bit about, you know, this all started with with Charles Nelson, which is, is it great, great grandfather? Triple great. Three Triple greats, great yeah. grandfather. Yeah. I knew that. I just wanted you guys to confirm. <laughs> well, it's, it's our dad's great, great. So you weren't totally wrong. And and your dad did kind of help you throughout this uh, mm -hmm. process and learning more about the history of your family. And and let's talk about that for a second because Charles was born in 1835 in Germany. Right. Came over here. It's it's a heck of a story. I don't want to steal all your thunder, but 
his father actually died on the trip, right? Right. He was born in 1835, actually on the 4th of July, which is something that we love and and always keep a you know keep that in mind on the fourth of July that uh, we'll always be doing something to celebrate on the fourth at at the distillery or you know uh, wherever we are. But is that kind of why uh, you got the huge flag? Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, we're just proud Americans. That's why we got the, the big flag. Now uh, that that actually as you should be. Yeah, <laughs> that's kind of another story. Happy to to tell that. Uh, in a little bit. But so, born on the 4th of July, and Charles's father owned a soap and candle factory, and in 1850 decided he wanted to move his family to America, so he sold the soap and candle factory, converted all the family's earthly possessions to gold, and had special clothing made to hold all the gold on his person. So he had gold sewn into his clothing, gathered up his family, his wife, and six kids, Charles being the oldest, 15 at the time. And they boarded this ship named the Helena Sloman, which turned out to be kind of a famous German ship. It was the first German steamship to make the transatlantic journey. There was an episode of the history on the History Channel about the Helena Sloman, and uh, brought a bunch of famous German passengers over. But it but only did made that episode of the History Channel did it have something like did aliens actually take the ship? <laughs> <laughs> I think that was a part of it, actually. For a while, the History <laughs> Channel got to be all Nazi or alien. Like yeah, it was, right. oh, there were some weird theories in there, and I don't want to get too deep in this or, or too far off the beaten path, but I, I saw something on the History Channel that essentially the the whole thing was blaming the was blaming cocaine for like the slave uprisings in the slave rebellions really? in early America. And it was just like I you know, I never heard that in a history book, which doesn't necessarily make it true or untrue, but it was just, that's kind of a crazy theory. I love the guy with the <laughs> hair, and they always do memes of him. Oh, yeah. And it was, you know, they would always show, like, uh, the pyramids, and you know, did aliens help them do the pyramids? And you can't <laughs> disprove it, but yeah, they would just right? throw that out to anyone. Oh, a second. It was the crazy, like, curly hair that looks like a, a fake wig. Yeah. Is that, that guy? Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll go back to it. But anyway, yeah. so very, very famous <laughs> German ship. Hmm. Yes, so the Helena Sloman. So the family is on the ship. They're on their way to New York. Uh, it's like, I think, what, like a month-long journey or something like that. While they're at sea, there were severe storms. The ship was damaged, and it was taking on water for a couple of days. Luckily, there was another ship nearby named the Devonshire who was coming to rescue the passengers from the Helena Sloman. And our family was on a little rescue boat. There was a little rescue boat that was transferring passengers from the Helena Sloman to the Devonshire. Our family was on that, and it ended up capsizing. And the father, with all the gold on his person, he went straight to the bottom of the Atlantic. Oh, um, but the rest of the family was able to make it safely to the Devonshire, then safely to New York, but with literally nothing but the clothes on their backs. Charles, you know, at 15, takes over as man of the family, finds work at the Hazen Schultz firm in New York, making soap and candles, which he does for two years, moves to Cincinnati, and that's where he became a butcher. And he became friends with a distiller because the pigs that he was butchering were being fed by spent mash from this nearby distillery. So... And that's something that we deal with today, you know, regularly is, you know, we've got Farmer Flake who he comes and picks up our spent mash and feeds what to his cows and 
I think maybe some pigs as well. Andy, is that right? Yeah, I think he's got all cattle, and then uh, uh, Farmer Greg, who will come by as well. We got two different farmers and feeding it, yeah, to their cattle and hogs. What's up with farmers? Like where you have to call them farmer before their name? <laughs> it's it's some. I feel like I just carry it carry it on from like the being a kid. Like yeah. old McDonald had, a, you know, it's like Farmer McDonald. It just sounds right, you know. Yeah, and then the songs like. Well, Farmer John is really mad. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I've heard that one, but we can we can Super publish turkey. it right now if you need. Oh yeah. Are you worried about your brother having a side gig as a country singer? Very much so. <laughs> I can't believe I just said. I need on. him to focus on this. <laughs> yes, but but you were saying that obviously there's a lot of stuff he learned in being a merchant. Almost the and you're taking. I mean. Uh, for those of you listening, I'm dorky and I actually wrote out index cards with things that I wanted to hit. And Charlie could just name this stuff. I mean, it is your profession. You should. <laughs> but it's amazing. You've actually got an order of everything <laughs> that I have on the card. I had, you know, Charles, eldest of six, came when he was 15. Uh, father died on the way. Like all this stuff. You are hitting it line by line. So I don't want to stop you from there, but yeah, I could he, keep going. He did the butcher business when, when he was 17. Yep. Learned about whiskey and, yep. and what actually was going on in there. But that's kind of when they moved to Nashville shortly after that, right? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So they moved to Nashville in, uh, before the start of the Civil War in 1858 and started a wholesale grocery business. And there he had three great selling products, coffee, meat, and whiskey. And uh, his butcher was a guy named Mr. Hill who started his own grocery business that's still kind of around today. Not H. Butcher Hill, Hill, Mr. Hill. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, he wasn't a farmer, so. Yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Those butchers and, don't get the same level of reverence yeah. that, that uh, farmers it's a damn do. shame. Um, well, you know, you call him like, uh, you know, friends, we're friends with the guys from Porter Road Butcher and call him like Chris the Butcher or James the Butcher, you know, so... So they get like, the article there. They yeah. get the... Yeah. Tell those Although, guys I miss them on Charlotte. Yeah. I used to go there I all will. the time. I will. I will say the... Well, no, actually, yeah, that's right. Because so in Gangs of New York, I, I was on TV, you know, a couple of weeks ago. Great movie. Again, total aside here. But it was something that I was watching that and this is going to come back to the butcher here but i was realizing like oh my god this is the world that charles and his family were living in that when they got to new york in 1850 that was that was what they were thrust into yeah. uh my point with the butcher was that um the you know one of the main characters william cutting the bill the butcher yeah that was you know he was he was bill the butcher he wasn't butcher bill he was bill the butcher as you so can I guess see that we makes have sense. a very strict format yeah <laughs> historical context for it. yeah i mean it's really more just a free-flowing conversation <laughs> and i'm sure for you guys it's it's probably a little bit nicer to not just be like so tell me the same story you have told now for well, this is actually the time. first time that i've told it in full just kidding Oh. <laughs> he had me for once. I looked at him. <laughs> that does not sound right. Oh, but he moved to Nashville, and and he realized during the time that whiskey was selling better than everything else. Right, right, right exactly. Yeah. So he was one of the first to bottle and sell whiskey rather than selling it by the barrel or the jug. So 
you, know, you can imagine a lot easier to walk away with a bottle rather than a 500-pound barrel. You may not know this, but is that something that he kind of, going from Cincinnati to Nashville and, and that kind of journey, would that be something that he would have picked up, going down what, what Brown was doing with Old Forrester at the time, that kind of stuff, or, or was it word of mouth that they learned to bottle it up? Uh, that's a good question. Um, well, I don't. I don't think we've ever learned specifically, you know, how or why. All we know is that he was one of the first to get on on that train, you know, in the early going, and so that helped him, you know, definitely a whole lot in being able to to sell a good amount of product. He knows that nobody is going to mess with it. We could spend a lot of time talking about that because there are rectifiers and all sorts of stuff that all sorts of people that are putting things into yeah. the the barrels and kind of stretching out that whiskey. So I think that probably had to booster his reputation for being someone that was pretty good to deal with. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, he, he was a great marketer and his advertising, you know, it, he was always saying like, you know, it's not genuine without my name on the bottle or, you know, stuff like that. And, and he was, he was just kind of a, um, ahead of his time a little bit in, in terms of marketing and just the way that he did business and conducted himself. And I mean, speaking of that, I saw something in the bathroom that says the whiskey doesn't give you headaches. Yeah. So if that's the case, <laughs> sign me up. Yeah. I am, I am there for some original Nelson's Greenbrier if it's not going to give you a headache. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, that's going to be our guarantee. <laughs> No, I mean, it's it's amazing. I mean, because you, not only in the bathroom, but in the rest of the kind of hallway of history, as we call it, there are all these different, uh, you know, ads and articles from back in the day. And it's like the claims that they make that would, in a very literal sense, be actually illegal to claim today. You know, yeah. things like yeah. our water is, you know, as pure as can be found in the un in the universe. And you You can't, I don't think, actually legally claim that your water is the best in the universe but it Maybe sounds pretty should. cool yeah. what if it was that water that like the water boy had in the, yeah like, bobby had it around his neck <laughs> uh, very well may be and now there's this thing. whole big deal about raw water you guys heard about this no but i know that there's buying the limestone water that's now bottled up and stuff like that so there's definitely still a marketing kick for water I think a lot of times, and, and we'll get to the actual distillery, but people would put distilleries where there was a good water source, right? Mm -hmm. So that Absolutely. was a big selling point for them. And if you think about the ones that are in Tennessee, obviously we don't have that problem as much anymore because you can go get some water from someplace else if you need to. But that still has to be a big determining factor for where you guys set up even today, right? Yeah, and and I mean, especially back in the day when you had to have a high-quality water source and, like, you know, our family's distillery back then was right by this spring that has never stopped running. I mean, it, at least it's been running still to this day, been run, running continuously at a solid about 50 degrees just like a solid stream and you know filtered through limestone and everything and so that was important to get the iron out of the water and everything and nowadays it's a little bit easier to do because the 
technology that we have these days, especially with respect to water filtration or just filtration in general? Got to speed it up because I know that um, yeah. we could talk about a lot of this <laughs> yeah. stuff for a long time. So in 1860, he realized there's more money in actually going out and getting a distillery on his own and actually producing it. So he yep. goes and buys one that's already made in Greenbrier, Tennessee. 25 years later, let's skip ahead and go a little bit quicker. He's producing 380,000 gallons compared to a black and white label that people might know now that was only doing 23,000 gallons at the same time. Pretty huge company at that point, right? Yeah, yeah. It was by far the largest in Tennessee, one of the largest in the country. And it was also, it was known as old number five because it was registered distillery number five. Which you guys uh, got to keep. Exactly. Yeah. We're super fortunate that the federal government recognized that fact and gave us an historic designation of DSP, Distilled Spirits Plant TN, Tennessee 5. So we're, we're really proud of that. So Charles, he was producing about 30 different labels. He had multiple Tennessee whiskeys, multiple bourbons, corn whiskeys, rye whiskeys, a malt whiskey, apple brandy, peach brandy. Even gin. He actually produced one of the first American gins, and he had a fortified wine. So he had a lot of different products, and there were a few different brands that he produced in conjunction with other companies, one of which being Bell Mead. And it was produced in conjunction with the Sperry Wading Company. Charles, his products were being sold all throughout the United States, even, even in, in Europe. France, right? Yep, in France. Uh, even as far as the Philippines prior to Prohibition. Charles ended up passing away in 1891, and his wife Louisa took over as one of the only women to run a distillery back then, which is something that we're super proud of, and we'll, we'll probably talk a little bit more about Louisa. Well, uh, let's do it. I mean, because she had... It was yeah. a very interesting position for her to be in because she assumed control of the distillery and the company, and then... In 1909, Prohibition came along, so she ran it for you know a good 18 years before that actually came to be. If you think about her as a person, that is a big deal to be thrown in a position like that, not having the experience, I mean, being adjacent to it. We don't know how much she was actually doing with Charles at the time, but that's crazy, right? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I, that most... Uh, kind of amazes and impresses me is, you know, you can kind of spout off all the, the facts of, you know, what was going on in those days. But if you try to really like put yourself and imagine yourself in her shoes at that time, I mean, not only as a person to be thrust in that situation, but especially as a woman, when you put, she wasn't allowed to vote. Certainly it's a very male dominated industry as it, you know, frankly kind of still is today, but especially back then, just the, the general kind of social and societal uh, norms and, and what was going on. Here she is running this, the biggest distillery in the state of Tennessee and one of the biggest in the country, as Charlie said, and, and still killing it. I mean, she was still very successful and, you know, it didn't, it didn't seem to really uh, go, go downhill with her. Again, this is kind of purely speculation, but my putting myself in her shoes, when you when you think about it, 1909 comes and it's prohibition statewide. And so, you know, national prohibition is still 10 years away. But if I put myself in her position, I'm thinking, so she's probably getting a whole lot of pressure from outside sources, you know, the certainly the religious groups and organizations and churches, and then just generally, you know, 
socially. Maybe her, the kids, friends, parents at school or, or whatever, like, oh, you, you know, this is very improper. You're such a sinner, all, all these kinds of things that were most likely happening. And so the way that I see it is that prohibition may have honestly been almost more of an excuse for her to, to go ahead and shut it down and kind of get this burden off her shoulders. And so that's, you know, to kind of jump ahead, one of the questions that we often get asked is, so how, how did you guys really not know uh, about this history? Growing I, I up? was going to get there. Yeah. So <laughs> you're bringing it up. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, we get it a lot. And, and the answer is basically when you put yourself again in Louisa's shoes and you think about that, once prohibition began and ended the distillery business, well, fortunately for the company, Charles had gotten into banking before he died and helped found Nashville Trust Company. And so they had a pretty lucrative business that was perfectly legal to fall back on. They didn't have to keep bootlegging or anything like that. When well, she had away. enough that she could go sell out what stock you guys did have at the time up at Louisville until right. Prohibition ended in Kentucky, right? Yeah, exactly. So they that's one of the interesting things is that Prohibition didn't require them. You know, you see the, the old sort of Ken Burns documentary videos of the revenuers taking an ax to the barrels and just dumping it down the drain or whatever. They didn't make them do that. They just made them stop producing, but they were allowed to sell off the remaining inventory in barrels. And so, yeah, they started, uh, he opened up his um, sort of office and, and warehouse facility in Louisville, downtown Louisville on what is now Whiskey Row, uh, 100 East Main Street. He had a, a facility there that he would sell out of kind of to sell off his inventory after prohibition. So, the way that I see it again is that Louisa saw this as an excuse to kind of shut down. And when she told her kids we're shutting down business, she most likely was not saying, now we need to keep our pride in this. We need to keep, you know, keep our heads up and everything. It was probably more something like, now listen, you know, I know you get gotten a lot of pressure from probably your friends at school and I've gotten pressure from, from my friends, etc. So let's just kind of let this go, you know, kind of let it, take its path. And so each generation thereafter, kind of the history kind of got swept under the rug. And so over a hundred, 110 years, each generation lost a little bit more than, than the last. And so by the time it got to us and we learned about it, there, there wasn't a whole lot to know. I mean, they're kind of the main, the main pieces and, and that, but you know, we've, we've kind of taken that and run with it. Well, and I'm like you, I really like trying to understand the psychology and, and, you know, what are the socioeconomic factors? What what was actually making somebody make a decision? And you have to think, even before it got to that point, even before prohibition, those movements were happening, there had to have been some people going up to her, even as a woman, and saying, why don't you turn it over to me? I'll handle it for you. I bet right. you don't know how to do a distillery. There, there has to be a bunch of other stuff sure, that... Yeah. We don't even know because that's 18 years is a very long time well, to yeah. actually run something. Hucksters and con men have been around, you know, since the dawn of time. There's no avoiding that. And there's probably people that went up to her and said, oh, uh, just put me on your board. I'll help you out. She has to have been incredibly strong yeah. to have done what she did. And I think it's just a, a side note, but a pretty big side note to mention that because of how strong she is, you guys actually do an award every year, the Louisa Nelson award. Yeah. And uh, I think there's a dinner around it too, right? Yes. Yeah, so um, we, 
we've created this award, so we take um, nominations throughout the year, and, and um, we basically honor three different Nashville area women who are excelling in their field or, or just doing great work in the community, and we donate money to charities of their choosing in, in their names, and um, you know, then have an event and. You know, have some food and drinks and and music and and we give out the awards, which are cool little barrel heads. Um, oh, that's awesome. <laughs> and yeah, so this will be our third year, and then we also we also just got this mural painted of Louisa in our production area. Our still is named Louisa after her, and we also just uh, recently created a liqueur called Louisa's Liqueur, which we might be tasting a little bit later. Yeah, we'll have to. That's the one thing I think you guys have that I have not had yet. So that'll be something that we'll talk about in the second half here. Let's spring forward ahead many, many, many years, probably about 80, 90, 100 years after. Sorry, more like 100 years. It's like 94 years. Yeah. That's quick math in my head. <laughs> you and a... You two and your dad go up to Greenbrier, see Chuck the Butcher. Chuck Grissom. And uh, he doesn't he make sausages? Yeah. Those gr Grissom sausages? He, you can't beat Grissom's meats, I think it was, uh, or maybe we just made that up, but um, he, he made a little... <laughs> he made a lot of but stuff. But it should have been. He was Chuck the Butcher. Um and he was a monster of a man. I mean, his calves were like the size of my torso. I think he actually passed away like within the last year or two. But um, we were we were on our way to buy a, basically a quarter of a cow worth of meat from Chuck. Our dad went in with three of his buddies to buy a whole cow. And he invited us to go with him to pick up our quarter on our way there. You know, I had never been to Greenbrier before. Andy, I don't know if you had. No. Um, and it's crazy how close it is, too. Yeah. Maybe. It's super close. And I honestly, I didn't even know that it existed. But um, we're on our way there. We're running low on fuel. We stopped to fill up. And at the gas station, there was this historical marker that said Nelson's Greenbrier Distillery, one mile east on Long Branch Road. Charles Nelson opened the Greenbrier Distillery. Like, You're like, hey, that's my name. Yeah. <laughs> But at first, it was like, I, I was like, well, that's a pretty common name. I mean, I, I wonder if that's our family. And then we go on to the to Chuck's, um, and he happened to live a mile east. And when we got there, we asked him if he knew anything about the old distillery. He showed us across the street. And I, I love the way that he spoke. He was just a, an awesome guy. So he shows us across the street where there's this old barrel warehouse still standing, the original spring still running. We drank from the spring. Of course, it was the crispest, coolest, coldest, cleanest, freshest, purest, <laughs> coldest water you've never tasted. But then uh, Chuck sent us a few blocks away to this historical society where there were two original bottles of the Greenbrier Tennessee whiskey with our name on them. Just about every hair on my body stood up. Andy and I looked at each other and we were just like, man, this is what we're here to do. And so we've been working on resurrecting the company ever since. At the time, all we knew about was the Greenbrier Tennessee whiskey. We didn't know about Bell Mead yet. In trying to raise money to build the distillery and start laying down barrels of our Greenbrier Tennessee whiskey, 
we were doing a lot of research in state archives and county archives and found that Charles produced, you know, 30 plus labels and that Bell Mead was one of them and that he produced it in conjunction with another company. So after over two years of trying to raise money and being told no every single day, we decided to put up literally everything that we own, uh, personally guarantee a loan to get started sourcing barrels and working with a contract distillery to create Bell Mead. And then we were, were able to raise a little bit of money, start building our own distillery, start taking production in-house. Now we're working on building another much larger facility to take 100% of production in-house. I spent hours and hours like researching, doing notes, all that other fun stuff. All I needed was Charlie. I mean, he just sits here. He's literally going line by line of everything that I had here. So he's just kind of go out the window. Um, a couple of things that I think are very interesting of what you just said there. That bigger facility, is that going to be in Greenbrier or is that going to be here? I heard a rumor somewhere that you guys were, were thinking about opening something up there. Yeah. Um, I mean, the ideal would be to be on the original property and everything like that that's not very practical it would cost a lot of money we'd probably have to tear down some houses build new roads it's just not really feasible we we actually we're looking at uh some property in robertson county it's important that we we, we really want to be as close as possible but we also you know it is a business and we want to make sure that we're not going to a place, uh, a property that just wouldn't work well just for saying that it's as close to the original as possible. But So the other big thing that I think you mentioned there, too, is 100% of the production in-house. Does that mean that the, the contract sourcing goes away at that point? So, I mean, I, I don't want to make any guarantees. And back in the day, Charles Nelson actually worked with other companies. So the ideal is to do 100% on our own. However, you know, I wouldn't be opposed to working with other distilleries at some point as well. I mean, we currently do contract production now. So, Well, I don't think it's anything... I mean, it's business at yeah. the end of the day. So I don't think there's anything here that is, is crazy or a shocker. It's kind of like you would love to also put the warehouses where those old warehouses used to be. Absolutely. And if the price is right and if it makes sense from a business point of view, then yes. If it's if it's not going to make sense, then I understand that. I mean, yeah. I think it's the same thing when we all kind of get attached Think about the wonderful Prince hat you're wearing. And we were all <laughs> sad when Shea Weber got traded. Yeah. But if you think about what the Preds got yeah. from Shea Weber and bringing PK in there and and all the other stuff in the deal, it got them to the Stanley Cup Finals. So right. sometimes, mm -hmm. sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, it's a good point. And yeah. I get that. Going back and, and contract sourcing, not necessarily to, to harp on that point. I don't think it's a point that needs to be harped on. Everybody knows it. Everybody knows where it is if you live in Nashville. But the what I do want to ask is if you think about people that are owning a, and starting a distillery, a lot of people will start off either sourcing or they'll put out a gin or they'll put out a vodka or they'll put out new make. They'll do something to supplement 
while those barrels are aging. So when did you guys know that you were going to go with Nelson's and actually do your own distillate? Was that something from day one? And what made you decide to, to source in the beginning rather than, I, I do know you have the Nelson's White Dog, mm-hmm. or Tennessee White Lightning, sorry. But what uh, what made you decide to do, they're actually moving barrels, guys. They do work here, <laughs> if you're wondering <laughs> what that beeping sound is. Yeah, they're about to do the charcoal mellowing right now on the distillation run from earlier. If you're here for a tour, it's probably a, a heck of a tour to be on. But So yeah. what, what made you decide to do that over something more of the clear variety yeah we to answer your question quickly it was uh it was absolutely from day one that we knew we wanted to do our own distillate for nelson's greenbrier tennessee whiskey and so as charlie had mentioned before we kind of when we looked more into the history it, it all had to do with you know for one the history and how charles did it back in the day and then how we could translate that into present day being a functioning business and so it was purely i mean Again, our business plan was from day one, let's raise a bunch of money, build the distillery and sit on barrels for four years or more until it's ready to go. And then we'll start getting revenues. Of course, no one was going to give us money for that. So so we had to change. And then that's when we learned about Bellmead Bourbon and how it was produced originally through a third party contract distillery, essentially. And so, so we said, okay, well, that's actually a really great idea. That's a good way for us to get started in business. And what that allowed us to do was get a proof of concept going. And, you know, we, we sourced uh, from MGP, got, you know, our, our sort of own unique blend from different recipes from MGP and put out Bellmead bourbon under that original label as it was done hundred years ago. Now, what that allowed us to do was get a little more experience. Well, some experience at all, sort of learning how to walk the walk, you know, and how to sell whiskey, talking to the distributors, learn the whole language and everything like that. Get it overall a proof of concept to the potential investors to tell them, hey, look, you didn't necessarily believe us before, but here's what we're actually doing. Look at this. So what that allowed us to do was get uh, sort of buy-in from people um, and saying, hey, you know, I believe you You guys look like you know what you're doing now. And so that it, all along from day one, it, well, really, day one, it was like, okay, let's do this plan. Okay, that's not going to work. Okay, let's let's evolve it and change it up a little bit. But we never once wavered from the ideal and knowledge that we were eventually going to, to produce our Greenbrier Tennessee whiskey from our own distillate, our own grains, everything like that. And so that's always been the plan. Um, it's just a matter of how we could arrive there, you know, what vehicle would get us there. And we're almost very into what I kind of want to talk to you guys about in our second episode. So so let's kind of, before we close this one out, let's talk about, obviously there was a lot, a lot of learning curve there. You guys were figuring this all out, realizing that you had this whole family history and then figuring out how do we actually go and execute that. And like you said, it was your POC. What did you learn in that POC? What was the biggest thing that you guys think you probably messed up on? And what do you think the biggest thing? It's almost, I know it sounds like a job interview. Tell me a time where you really went above and beyond and tell me a time that you could have done better. <laughs> uh, well, Charlie, I'll let you answer this too. But I, I, you know, for me, it was 
learning just the confidence and knowing what we were doing and being able to talk to potential investors and money guys. I mean, Charlie and I both studied philosophy in college, you know, so we, you know, we weren't financial experts. We didn't know sort of the ins and outs of the fundraising game or what the people were going to ask us when we said, Hey, give us your money and that kind of thing. And so it was a lot of it was just purely confidence and knowing that we were doing our job the right way. And to me, that was, that was really the, the biggest thing. And the second thing was being able to, when it came time, uh, for people to say, yeah, we believe in you enough to give us, to give you our money. It was one of the hardest things that I know that we've ever had to do was turning people down. And it sounds kind of crazy when we're sitting here talking about like, oh, we've been two years with zero investments yet. But then finally, some people started saying, yes, we'll give you money but we want X, Y, and Z. And those, you know, some of those X, Y, and Z were things that we were not willing to give up. And so it was taking the right money, not just any money. It's not just Shark Tank on a TV show. Yeah, it's, uh, absolutely not. It gets a little crazier when there's actual investors involved. But yeah. what about you, Charlie? I don't think Cod could handle doing bourbon because there's no universal truths here. So what are your... <laughs> You know, what's your biggest success and, and what you think you could have done better kind of as you guys got going? I mean, I wish we had been able to get started sooner. I kind of wish we had just accepted the fact that people weren't going to give a invest in us initially to raise, to build the distillery up front. And we had just accepted, okay, we got to start outsourcing and and just start that path because then we probably would have gotten the distillery built sooner years um, prior yeah uh but we instead were were like no we have to build this distillery that's what we have to do first and we're going to do it 100% on our own but people just flat out would not invest in that and and we couldn't raise enough we couldn't get enough money loaned to us either for that so i wish we had just sort of seen what people were saying and and you know gone with that earlier and as far as successes um you know i i think just i don't know it's hard to toot your own horn sometimes but uh, i get it it's i mean I, I will tell you one thing that Keith clark we were we yeah. were talking to him and he was telling a story about how he laid a barrel down and the time of the year that he put the barrel down opposed to when he would have put it down another time completely changed the whole profile of it and it was just something that he didn't know a lot of at the time he He's like, I never would have known that. And then somebody was telling me that if you did it at that time, it's a different flavor profile. And it's how, yeah, you know, uh, how some of his whiskey came to be. And that's more of what I was going after. Yeah. If there was any like. And I think, I think something that has been really cool that has been a success for us is the, the sort of innovation in finishing. Um, you know, from the sherry cask and cognac cask, Madeira cask, the Black Bell. And then we've got a, a handful of, of new things coming out this year that will be pretty exciting. Can't talk too much about that yet, but... Uh, More Black Bell, we hope. But we're going to talk about this, so so yep. uh, we'll close this one out here a bit. But yeah, I'd, I'd say just the, the finishing. I think that that... We started out with doing the sherry cask, and that 
you know, we did not realize how much that was going to take off and, and it, it did. And it won some big awards and it's Andy's favorite product. And I think that that was just a, a really great thing that gave us a lot of confidence in being able to do things maybe maybe outside the box it may not seem as outside the box now but three and four years ago it was certainly less uh less common so so that helped a lot any other things you guys want to talk about from a historical point of view you know one thing actually i think that we left this out i think we went down a rabbit hole but charlie was talking about the two vendors at the this is kind of major callback here charles is uh uh, his grocery store, his uh, his butcher was Mr. Hill. The, the second guy who worked with him was Joel Cheek, who was kind of his coffee delivery guy. And so uh, what happened when Charles bought the distillery and decided to get out of the grocery business was he let Joel Cheek take that blend of coffee, took it a couple blocks up the street to 4th Avenue, which was where then the Maxwell House Hotel was. And so uh, kind of an important, interesting little fun fact there is that ended up turning into you know Maxwell House Coffee. Uh, so that's kind of an, an extra little offshoot that's just a pretty fascinating little piece of history. So do they let you guys use Cheekwood, whatever you want? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I basically like go there every weekend. <laughs> well, I mean, if you think about it, it's like, hey, you know, I got a friend who's getting married. We need the house. Yes, <laughs> he wouldn't have had this house if it wasn't for my family. Well, I wish. That is a fun fact there, and I actually had that in my notes, too. So where were you on that one, Charlie? Oh, gosh, I'm sorry. Um, on that note, we will we will take a break here. We will let these wonderful people who are having a tour, they seem to be having a good time. But yeah. we are going to be talking about what they're drinking on their tour because I want to focus on the whiskey, what you guys have put out. And, uh, I'm holding back from asking a lot of questions on the finishing so if you guys want to hear more about that, tune in for part two. Until then, go ahead and find these guys on uh, their website, which is greenbriardistillery.com. And they are very active on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, all those things. There's two of them, though, so you got to be careful. There's NGB Distillery, and then there is also... Bell Mead Bourbon, but it's Bell Mead B-R-B-N. So you got to look out for both of those on Instagram. You can find us on Instagram at Dad's Drinking Bourbon. You can find us on Facebook at Dad's Drinking Bourbon. Twitter at Bourbon Dads. You can find us on Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, YouTube, Podknife, all of your favorite podcast providers. Please go ahead and leave us a five-star review. But if you hate us, feel free to leave me a message because I'd rather fix it that way. Anything you guys want to say to the folks before we go out? Keep drinking bourbon. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.